From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's December 30th, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. First up on today's episode, we're featuring the new animated film Anomalisa. From beloved writer-director Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson, it follows a lonely man on a surreal, melancholic business trip away from his family. The film was made entirely with stop-motion puppets, and features the voice talents of David Thewlis as the lonely businessman, Jennifer Jason Lee as his love interest, and Tom Noonan as nearly every other character, cleverly demonstrating how, as loneliness overwhelms the protagonist, all the people around him seem the same. Anomalisa opens in select theaters December 30th. Here's Alex Hunter from the Film Society talking to Tom Noonan after a recent sneak preview of the film. So, I mean, what, what were the kind of the challenges or questions that you and, I guess, the rest of the, your collaborators on this project faced when, between well, the two One of the rules pieces? that I have as an actor is never talk to the director. <laughs> if you're an actor, never talk to the director if you can help it. Which includes asking questions, because if you're on a set, this is digressing, <coughs> but I'll just teach a little for a minute. If you're on a set and you start asking questions of the director, like, well, why does Bill do that? And what happened when Donna, met, you know? Because then what happens when the scene sucks, the director knows I can go after that person because they've been asking me questions. And they've opened themselves up. So I never say anything <laughs> to anybody. When people start discussing shit, I just drift away. <laughs> And I try to approach stuff sort of practically, like, sort of like Charlie, I mean, like Charlie does in a lot of, you know, I just, okay, I got to do the scene and I got to, you know, win the scene. I got to have Bella win, you know, even though, and I never did, but, um, or all the different people, I try, I just approach these scenes as, you know, like, how am I going to beat David, which is usually my sort of mode when I act. You sort of want to win scenes. That's another thing. You want to win as many scenes as you can. <laughs> Decent things. So what was the recording? I know you recorded it with David Lewis and Jennifer Jason Lee over a very short period of time, but what was your relationship with them during the production of this? Well, we did it even though they also videotaped us doing the reading. Um, and I sort of knew a lot of the words because when we did the play, I do a lot of like interrupting of myself, playing different characters, so I knew the words pretty well. So um, it was just like acting in any other scene. And I, would, I moved around a bunch and moved my arms. And, and, you know, because I don't, I don't really have much faith in my voice. Um, and it was just like doing like a scene. And, every, you know, and I just had a lot of little ones. You know, what, I didn't really think like, oh, how am I going to make this look different than that? And how do I make her sound different than him? I didn't think that. I just tried to win each scene. So what is your relationship with Charlie Kaufman like? I know you were in his other films. I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, as a, I mean we're, we're pretty good friends. I mean, I've done everything he's directed I've been in. Um, I don't know what that laugh was about, but I'm going to ignore it. Um, there's four things I've, so I've, you know. Um, I don't know, we're like friends, and I've worked with him a lot, and he sort of knows me pretty well, and I... I tend to try to give him a hard time because I think it's funny on, on the set sometimes but and then he'll say please please don't do that anymore and I'll and I stop <laughs> you, <laughs> you had a very memorable role in Synecdoche New York ah. as well and was that shot before this initial 
Uh, was that shot before this initial sound? Before we fell for each other? No, no. We, we knew each other and had dinner several times. For, you know, that was years later. This was the first thing we did in 2005, but I met him probably in 2002 or three. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of years just hanging out and talking about like, uh, do, do you sit in a chair when you write? Or do you... Uh, things like that. Because um, I write and Charlie likes my writing. Plug, plug. Um, but, so, so, but the, yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm giving you a terrible time here. No, I don't even know what I was going to say. So once, I believe Duke Johnson came on board after, after the sound play stage of this process? Yeah, I, I don't think he's, I don't even know if he saw the play when it was done in L.A. Mm-hmm. in 2005. But then in 2012, when we went back out to, re, to record it over again, mm-hmm. um, he was there, but he had, he had just met, he didn't know Charlie that well, he didn't know us at all, and he didn't say a whole lot the first little bit that he was around. And then as, as I came, went back and worked with them again, six or five or six or four, I don't know how many times, he became a lot more like vocal and sort of did a lot of the directing and stuff. So with working with Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson, who are coming from very different backgrounds, I imagine you're dealing with two different artistic perspectives towards the project, or? No, one would say, I don't think that works, and Charlie would go, yeah, I don't think it works either, and you need to do something different. <laughs> I mean, Duke didn't, he, I didn't think of him as an animator, he was just, just a guy that, that, and the two of them became really close over time, too, so when they would, when I would come back and they would work on all this, these little, what they called walla, all the little voices in the background, I mean, it was sort of like dealing with one person. They were pretty together most of the stuff. How long did that process take? Again, like probably, I probably, re, probably four or five times I went back out and worked for a day or two on it. And then they'd come back and say, you know, all that stuff you did for the past couple of months is no good and it doesn't work. We have to do it all over again. <laughs> Which is okay, but most of it was me. Like, you know, Charlie would go in the booth and we, I would sort of make up some sort of scenario and we'd just start talking to each other without they wouldn't record his voice, just mine. Then they would flip it so that I would be playing his part so that it was me just talking to myself. So there's a lot of recording of me re- doing one half of a conversation and then me then talking back to me myself doing that half of the conversation. It's so like in the lobby and in the, you know, in the restaurant and all, the, all those little voices you really can't hear. Did you have experience voice acting in the past? Oh boy, did I ever. <laughs> no, I never did any. I mean, I did a... No. no. <laughs> um, no, I did a Bill Plimpton movie once. Um, I did a book on tape once. <laughs> um, no, I haven't done a lot. I mean, I, again, I don't, I, I sort of feel my voice is very monotonous and sort of flat and ironic and deadpan. So it's just that I don't really like it. So you, you have experience behind the camera, in front of the camera, now as a voice actor, as well as a screenwriter and, and an editor, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I edit and film compose. How I, how I became an actor was I became a, I started writing music for, for my friends' movies and plays. Mm-hmm. And then I, I started seeing these actors in these plays and going, geez, I could do that. <laughs> and so I started doing it. And I became, I was pretty, I got a successful writer. Because most actors, you know, never mind, we can't do what most actors are like, but go to an audition and just look around. <laughs> are there many actors here? No, oh, a couple. Yeah. I mean, I went to my first, this has nothing to do with anything anybody's interested in, but I went to my first audition and I looked around and thought, God help me, I ever turn into these fucking assholes. <laughs> Insecure losers. 
Okay, back. Let's get back on. <laughs> Did you ever? See, this is the kind of thing Charlie doesn't like when I start doing on the set. Did you ever think you'd be taking on a role quite like this? No. And I, you know, when they first told me, I mean, I'll just skip to the chase, but when they, everybody says, oh, you must have been so excited when they said they were going to do this as an animated movie. And I was like, what? I mean, I can't, you're not going to see me? <laughs> Shit. But I sort of got, I got used to the idea after a while. And I love it. Charlie's, it's the most fun experience in life working with him. I just go back to the camper and just read his scripts and laugh. He's, his shit's really funny. So your experience um, behind, on stage uh, and writing and directing films, how does that change your approach to what you do as an actor? Does that change your perspective when you take on a role? Or I guess you I, came from that background, so you're, are you thinking about what's going on behind the camera? I mean, if I'm in something I'm directing and I'm on camera, that's that kind of question? Or, or just in anything that you star in. Well, I don't know if this is answering the question. I did this, again, this play and then a movie called What Happened Was. It's about two people on a date. And we would do it, we did it for five weeks for an audience before I shot it. And I started noticing that some nights the audience would fucking hate me. Like, I would say things, and they'd be like, oh, they'd groan and hiss. And the other nights, they didn't like the woman who played the other character in the play. And I started noticing that the, that the meaning and the story of the play didn't have really anything to do with the words. And, and it sort of freed me a lot in, in acting to not worry so much about, you know, what the script's about or what even... I mean, it's important to be able to say your lines with some sort of intelligence, like you're making sense but to try to say them in some particular way to get a point across, I realized was really shooting yourself in the head. So, the, so sort of by directing, I learned to like a little, be a little easier on myself about acting and not try to, you know. So what are you thinking about when you're acting then? If you're not, I guess, thinking about a larger picture of the film or a particular scene, what, what is your, your approach to just, I guess, the immediate scene when you're performing? I'm going to be serious now. If you're compellingly present, which is another whole discussion, but if you're compellingly present as you perform in a movie or a play, everything you say makes sense and everything you do makes sense in the context of the play and all the words all make sense. If you're not compellingly present, no matter how you say the words and how much you studied them and figured out what they mean, and they don't mean anything to anybody. People go like, uh, I can't... Uh, why does he keep talking? Um, so, I don't know what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about, like, what does it feel like to be me? What's it like to be standing here? How did I end up in this spot? What do I want to do? How am I going to, you know, what's this person standing here? What are they talking about? I don't, what do you, why are you talking about? I'm sort of, you know, I try to keep it really, you know, simple and immediate. So that's interesting being uh, you saying that about your role in this film, whereas... Yeah, this is a little different. So when you're, when you're playing all these characters, just kind of in the, around the world in every little nook and cranny, yeah. 
what do you, what I'm not do you trying think? to be present. I'm trying to like I'm trying to hang on to this person that I felt I discovered when I did the play. Because mm -hmm. I sort of uh, you know when you act and you you be, I don't know you become somebody I don't know if you become somebody else but when you thing about acting is you're not yourself but you're more yourself than you are any other time if you're good at it and it's so when you when you do a play you really get attached to the sort of personas that uh, somehow arise in you so when they said I can't I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that it was sort of hard I, I really wanted to promote my the people I was talking for their point of view you know and all David Thulis would do is just treat me like shit because that's that's sort of his function as, as his, the character he plays never listen to me never really look at me not listen you know it's like this fucking guy I'm gonna kill him it was just it was it was very easy to sort of try to hang on to what I had and, and fight through his bullshit which was unending <laughs> as you just saw so I'd like to go ahead and take some questions from the audience. Uh, just raise your hand and I'll call on you and I'll, I'll repeat the question for, the, for everyone. Uh, yes, right here. Uh, I don't want you to, you know, I'm not asking you to like tattletale, but uh, <laughs> what went wrong? Sorry, what? What went wrong? What went wrong with which? The production. <laughs> Making the movie. Why, you felt there was a lot wrong with it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I loved it. Oh, okay. But, uh, so what do you mean what went wrong? Or am I just not getting it? I guess having made films myself not in the same way. Oh, what kind of what kind of crises do we have and problems they I wasn't around very much to know that. I mean, I know that they worked day and night for three years. Like They had like 25 people working and producing two seconds of animation. I wasn't involved in any of that stuff. I was just dealing with the, my, you know, trying to sound like me and hang on to the people that I played. What was your reaction when you first saw it? I, this, I thought this is pretty good. I mean, <laughs> what's great about Charlie is that Charlie, <coughs> his stuff is not complicated because he wants to be complicated. It's just he really, really wants every little thing to work uh, in his regular movies. So when he got this, uh, you know, this animation thing going and Duke worked with him, it gave Charlie such a chance to do all the little shit he does in, in every film that he directs. So there's, there's so much more, I've, in a lot of ways, that you could see Charlie and Duke a lot in the, in the movie, because it was, it was, it's so detailed and they had to work. I mean, I don't know if you know the whole process, but they would, when you do stop, mo stop motion animation, you sort of start, you have an idea what the, you want the thing to look like, but you're doing it one frame at a time and it's 24 frames a second. And, and you, you can't really get halfway through a, a move by an actor and go, oh, you know, I think it'd be much better if she started. You can't do that. You're sort of committed to the path you're on, which makes you approach shit in a very much more detailed and sort of like looking ahead sort of way. So th that was sort of amazing to see all that, so much of Charlie out there. Another question? When was the script written, and when did you read your lines? You mean when did I first read it? Yeah, when did you like record it? Well, we, in 2005, Charlie wrote it in like July, or he finished it in July and sent it to me in like the end of the summer, and I read it a couple times, and we rehearsed for three or four days, and then did it as a, as a sort of staged sound play. Yeah, the phone book felt old, so. 
the like phone book? where you took out a phone book and you looked up... Uh, Bella. Bella. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. Like, it just felt like the movie was made like 10 years ago because of that. Well, it was made sort of 10 years yeah. ago. And when he, when, when he reads the letter, when he, he opens the letter from Bella and says the date on it or so, she's, some of them, it was sort of cool because with that day we were working, actually working on it. And it was, we were, then we were in Venice and the day that, you know, 10 years earlier was the exact day that, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, that was sort of cool. And the movie's just so beautiful, it's just so beautiful that, that all the care they took. I mean, I would not have the patience to do that. You know, I, I don't think. I mean, I love to edit and do sound work, but Christ. <laughs> Easy. Any questions? Back there? What do you think the biggest difference between the play and this movie was? Questions about the difference between the play and the movie? That's hard to say. I mean, the play was extremely funny. Um, and sometimes when I see, I've seen three or four times the screenings of this because they have to go to these film festivals and um, and sometimes people laugh a lot and sometimes they don't and it works in a different way so it's 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 really hard to say I just know the play was I don't know funnier but it was people laughed a whole lot another question why do you think the the live version was funnier I mean what was the what was the viewing experience of that like? It was probably that they laughed more at me than they do in the movie a little bit. And I, I you know, act, you know, Brando said about actors, if you're not talking about them, they're not listening. I mean, all of you, when you're an actor, you sort of, your whole world becomes sort of narcissistic. So I just remember like, and it probably isn't true, but I remember them, everything I said and did in the play was just like, they were falling on the floor. <laughs> and then we did the movie and I'm like, this guy in the background, and nobody, you know, sort of like, <laughs> which is not true, but yeah. Did he talk about the decision to make an animation instead of live action? It, feel, it felt, watching it, like we don't see movies like this anymore without cuts and real time and just seeing, like there were moments in there that actors aren't allowed to have anymore. Like was there, was there ever a discussion that was going to be live actors? Like what, were you part of that at all? Well, all that happened, I mean, I'm, I'll talk a little, because I've heard Charlie and Duke talk about this a lot, but when we finished the play, in 2005, there was an offer to go to Australia and do it at the Opera House there. And then HBO was going to make a movie out of it. And I thought, wow, this is going to be great. Neither of those things happened. And then I didn't hear from anybody for nine years about the script. <laughs> um, then Charlie said, you know, it's, an, it's going to be animated. And I think it ended up being animated because nobody else, nobody else was coming to him saying, can I make this into a movie? And I think it sort of happened a little step at a time, and it was not some grand decision like, oh, let's make a stop-motion animation of this thing. I mean, there were certain advantages to make it stop-motion because I could be in it and play all these different people and look different and not, you know, I couldn't do that as, an, as a human being. Um, but I think it was more of a gradual thing, and I think all along the way, there were times at which, probably shouldn't say this, but I, I mean, I remember talking to them thinking, and them saying, this is never gonna work. There was pro problems about things they were trying to solve that uh, I wasn't there all the time during that, but you know, it was, it was scary and they didn't really know where they were going with it. Charlie had never done an animated movie, so it really happened very incrementally. Well, it looked like the, the faces, the, there was a decision made to make it self-consciously animation, like instead of trying to make it look 3D and, or whatever, to have the lines and the faces and the pieces. Oh. There was like a you know, a commentary about it being an animation. I don't know if that was 
for puppets? That I never was involved in that discussion. I've heard Charlie talk about it on, you know, when people Q&A him, but I, know, I don't know anything about his attitude about that. I mean, I know they tried other methods of animation at the beginning when they started working on it. And then when they sort of settled on stop motion, they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make the characters, why they looked the way they looked and changed a lot of the way they looked. And the whole question about the seams, I've heard Duke talk about it, but I don't think I can really talk about it convincingly about why they left certain scene, seams in the neck and stuff. Originally, when I did, first did the, came back to start looping and were adding the other voices, at that point, they, they had, besides the seams everywhere, they also had armatures, which they used to hold the pieces in place while they would you know, move things to animate it. So there's all these metal rods and shit that were, f they were all up through inside of people. It was, that was really cool. I, I thought they were gonna leave that, but they just left the lines on the neck. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for, for tonight, but I'd like to thank you all for coming. And we actually have the, the figures from the film on display just outside the theater, so I encourage you to check that out. And thank you, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Hi there, this is Allison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org WRT25. Andrew Haig's 2011 romance, Weekend, made a huge splash on the festival circuit, leading Grantland's Wesley Morris to call it one of the truest, most beautiful movies ever made about two strangers. Haig's latest film, 45 Years, stars Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtney as Kate and Jeff Mercer, a married couple preparing for their 45th wedding anniversary. After Jeff receives unexpected news about a former love, the couple is forced to re-examine their marriage from a new perspective. 45 Years had its premiere at the Berlin International Film Festival, where both Courtney and Rampling won Best Actor prizes for their rich and nuanced performances. The quiet, sophisticated drama is now playing in select theaters. Here's director Andrew Haig and Charlotte Rampling discussing the film with the Film Society's Associate Director of Programming, Florence Elmazzini, after a sneak preview earlier this month. I mean, we are like um, perfect um, chemistry of both of them together, and it's just... Um, it's always a pleasure to see uh, Charlotte Rampling on, on screen and specifically also to hear your voice because you have such a special sonority in your way of speaking. So just like it's, it's always a treat. So I think Charlotte should be in every single film ever made. <laughs> just all of them. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> just constantly on the screen would be very nice. We, we play that game sometime. We're like, yeah, it's, she's pretty good, but she's no Charlotte Rampling. <laughs> And it's good because we can do this for French film too, so, you know. 
Um, so um, I wanted to ask you um, if you were aware of Andrew's film, um, previous film, and what, what attracted you at first to the, um, the script that were, you were given and why made you, that made you want to do the film? It sort of, it, I mean, it didn't need any, any persuading because it was, it's very rare to, to read something that is so, that seems to be written for you, for oneself. I mean, for me as an actor, reading it, I said, but, but this has been made, it's made for me. It felt so extraordinarily um, that it was adventuring in all the right places that I wanted to go. Um, and these, these things are really quite, quite unusual. You know, it doesn't often happen in, a, in a, I don't think, in any actor's uh, lifetime that you really feel that something is absolutely tailor-made for you. And that's what I felt. So there was no hesitation. <laughs> Which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> I was terrified I was going to have to like spend months trying to persuade her. And we were on I the phone. Just, that was an easy catch, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a bit disappointed. I, said, Andrew, I, said, I thought Andrew. I was going to have to persuade you. And I had like, just, no, just okay. call you up, didn't I? And I just wanted to get you on the phone so quickly because I thought maybe he's thinking of somebody else at the same time. I have to get this. has to be for me, this one. <laughs> Please, please, for me. But it was so nice because that first conversation like we had on the phone, I think you know from that point that it's right. Do you know what I mean? And it's like if you think that you can collaborate with someone on that level, it's, mm. it just makes everything else so much easier. And you, you know, um, so yeah, it, it works very well. And I, th and I think if somebody can write that for, for a woman, a man can write that for a woman, and a younger man can write that for a woman, then already you know that there is a level of collaboration which is huge and a level of understanding which there, wasn't, which there was in our first phone call. It was like we were just ah, complete, just immediately connected. Yeah. It's wonderful. So I believe the movie was shot in sequence, or maybe most of it. Um, is, that helping, is that helpful for you as an actress to work in sequence, to develop your character? Oh yeah, um, it's, 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 it's a, yeah, it's a treat. It's really, really helpful, especially in a film like this that actually you really need to evolve very subtly with, and you're not quite sure what level of subtlety you, that you know you're looking for, because until you start to to play the characters, you know, the, uh, in situation with Tom, you know, we didn't know really how, how far we were going to go, where we were going to go. We, we were really exploring, although there, obviously there was a script we were following, but within the script and within the sequences and within the the dialogue and the emotional levels, we just yeah, we were, we were always feeling our way. So if we were doing it in, in real time, we were really living the story, in a way. You know, we really, day by day, we're living that story. Yeah. For me as well, I can't think there's any other way to do it. I'd be so confused otherwise. <laughs> it's like when you are trying to do things subtly, right. you know, it's, it's very hard if you shoot, you know, one scene, two weeks, and then you have to go back, and it's very complicated. I think there's a moment for me in the film when I, I know that those things work. It's like there's a scene when Charlotte uh, plays the piano, um, and I think, you know, Charlotte's just improvising that in the moment, that kind of piano piece. It's just like coming from her in that, in that, in that moment. And that was so fascinating to me. And I don't think you can get that unless you've built up to that moment, shooting everything in order to get to that point. And I watched that scene and to me, it's like the character's subtext is like loud and being, but it's all just through those piano keys. And I think it's just one of those moments that can only really come if you're working slowly through, through the material day by day, shooting in order to get something special like that. And I think people, 
uh, well, don't re wouldn't necessarily notice that, but they would completely notice that because actually that's what makes the layers of the film work, and that's what makes a film become, you know, really, or for the for I think for an audience to really connect with the film, especially as as deeply emotional as this one is is because of that. Is because it, those 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 little all those little layers were really, 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 really sort of lived through in a, in a very in a very organic way, because we could be, because we were in the house on our own most of the time, and we'd had a s not too large a crew, so it was like really being there. Producers hate it, because <laughs> they're like, we have to go and shoot upstairs now, and then, no, I can't shoot the scene later on upstairs in the bedroom, we have to relight it another day, okay. and we now have to go downstairs and do the next scene. I love the scene that you just mentioned, the piano scene. Uh, to me, it seems really a, a pivotal moment in the, in the film, where you see a past, a present, a future, and everything is expressed in her, in her face, and the regrets, um, all the questioning, and it's a, it's a really beautiful scene. So can you talk a little bit more about like when you came to work on that scene, and, and maybe also Charlotte? Yeah, I think it's always like, I don't think we, we, there was never like too much discussion, I think, between the two of us about, you know, what you need to be feeling in this scene. It's never, that would never be like a direction I would ever give an, an actor, like, and I don't want to give that direction. I want to just kind of see something in the moment and, and kind of feel if it works. And I think because we all were so in tune with what the script was and where the story was going, and even if we weren't precisely sure what the emotions were going to be in all the scenes, we knew about what was supposed to be happening, this ground shifting, this kind of, these regrets bubbling up and all these fears. And, you know, so for me, it was, it, it, we didn't need to have those conversations. They just kind of came organically and those scenes are kind of shot quite organically. And, and the, we, kept it, we kept it all very contained all the time. The, the shoot was, I think, six weeks, I think, wasn't it? And during that time, we were completely contained within that, that, that house. I mean, we were, were living in little houses sort of next, almost, you know, next door, very, very close. And there was no, there was no separation that actually happened either. That too was very important to contain to contain a tension and, or a building tension or a building sort of life change that's about to happen is something that you you can't just do haphazardly. Well, if you do it haphazardly, I'm sure it doesn't it, it doesn't work too well because it has to be something that is you know, that is profoundly felt actually and, and and held by the people that are playing it, by the director, by the actors. And, and almost by the crew too. Everyone was in a, in a certain state of mind. I mean, not, say, not saying it was. We were all very happy to do it because you don't actually have to be crying. Crying and, and, and but it but it's 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 a, it's just about being able to really yeah really contain your work within a space and within a space of time is something very. It's, it's a it's a great privilege to be able to do that because because the quality of the work is it really does it really does you really do feel that quality. Um, I really like all the, the long takes, that uh, seems to be something you quite master. And also the, the score, like the use of silence and the use of the specific um, tunes in the, in the film. So can you talk about uh, that decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think from the very early stages, I knew that I wanted it to be shot in long takes and lots of essential, like two shots, really. Um, and, you know, for me, it's very interesting to see 
especially a film about relationships, to see the two people actually in the frame at the same time, having that relationship and seeing the kind of dynamics of that relationship unfold in real time, rather than have it have the emotion created by the cuts. I kind of want to see the kind of awkwardness of that emotion sometimes happen in front of my eyes. Um, and I think when you start cutting too much, you're creating emotions via the cuts within scenes. And I just love what it does to performance and what it means about performance and, you know, uh, I mean, Charlotte and Tom, and everyone's aware that we are doing long takes, we're not shooting coverage. So it's about keeping within that scene. And for me, it just gives a very different type of, of type of thing. I don't know what it is, it just feels very different and feels more truthful to me. Um, and the same, the music was, a, you know, the music, pretty much all of those songs were in the script. Like it's all been scripted in, like I'm crazy about choosing the right soundtrack. But also it's, the, the songs are so important to the story. Like this is a story without flashbacks that you're trying to understand. A relationship almost and so those music the songs for me were like flashbacks you know when they're dancing around the living room to the stagger lee song i see them being like 24 again and dancing around the room and you know i think music is so important to all of our lives and parts of our lives and they define us in a different way in certain periods that i just yeah it's all that kind of stuff becomes very important so those songs were all your decision or did you get any feedback from them well, I yeah, think they were my decision, yeah. They were all, all in scripted in, the script. in actually. You, you thought them, you'd shot them right through, hadn't you, before? Yeah. I spent a long time in my bedroom in Norwich, which is near where we shot the film, just going through like every single song I could ever think of and playing them endlessly. Like that, the final couple of songs, that smoke gets in your eyes. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> Like I have literally had that in my head for the last four years. This way you don't, you only come at the end. Yeah, and I cover my ears. I'm like, I can't hear it, I can't hear it. But it still makes me feel emotional now, even then. And I, I find that song very interesting because it's the lyrics are totally like melancholy and, and like sad as anything. But I have heard that song being played at weddings, and I loved it, which you know doesn't say much about those those marriages. But I who are your friends? Yeah, but I loved the idea that you know there was a song that they was important to them, and it meant one thing 45 years ago. And then it's the same song, it's the exact same song, but listening to it again 45 years later at this wedding party the meaning of it feels totally different and everything has changed. And I just like that kind of contradiction. So um, did Andrew um, select any of your ideas or opinions uh, in terms maybe of the, the look that you have in the film, like your clothes or the design of the house? Or was it just all him? <laughs> the design of the house. What, do you mean I did have a choice in the design of the house? <laughs> well, you know, maybe he wanted to have some feedback from you. Yeah, maybe the de the decor could have been a bit different, but you know, <laughs> but, you, know I ca I, you don't choose these things personally. You become, you know, I become Kate, who's lived in that house for so long and had to sort of accept the fact that, you know, she might have not had quite the same taste in interior design as I did. <laughs> but that's okay. It's not a big deal. In, in terms of clothing, <laughs> though, I think the, the look is absolutely perfect. And I really like the clothes. Yeah, I think in terms of clothing, I don't think I have much to do with that. I feel like you and the costume designer discussed the clothing. Yes, uh, and we did, ha I mean, as I'm almost in the same clothing all the way through the whole film, we did have to get that sort of, sort of right. And I do remember thinking at one point that, you know, Kate is, you know, an everyday person. And there was always, like, in the back of some people's minds, not mine, but there was, would anyone believe that, like, Charlotte Rampling would walk through a Norwich in, like, an old Mac... You know, would anyone believe that? And I was like, yes, they will. It will be Kate. And it was fine. There's a, there's a scene when uh, Charlotte walks through the town and there's people everywhere. There's loads and loads of people. And we just have the camera hidden in the back of a taxi and we're just filming Charlotte walking through the town. And 
you were just you know Kate the character you didn't have people going oh my god there's Charlotte Rampling so the proof was I really did become Kate yeah. <laughs> or the people of Norwich who don't watch enough films which could be the other thing thank you Andrew <laughs> Um, so, I mean, the movie could be nearly called like Scene from a Marriage, um, in a way, even so it's not as dramatic as some Bergman film, but could you talk a little bit about maybe your inspiration as uh, filmmakers or specific films that you were thinking about when you made this one? Yeah, I mean, my influences are very like, you, I don't think you can make a film like this without having Bergman in the back of your mind a little bit. I think I'm certainly a lot lighter and happier than some of those Bergman films, even though this is still quite devastating. It's still not on the same kind of level. Um, and interestingly, we actually played this film at Bergman's festival on his island in, in uh, Sweden. So I got to play the film in his personal little cinema, which is like a 12-seater cinema on this little island. It was pretty amazing. Um, and you stay in like a guest house, which is next to his. Anyway, that's relevant, but still, uh, he, no, Bergman, please, Bergman is always like you know an influence on this kind of thing. But I think, you know, I think there's one film that I always go back to, which isn't really anything to do with this. But there's a film called Uzak, a Turkish film that's probably about ten years ago now, Nuri Bilgey Jalan, and I love that film so much. And it's one of those films I weirdly always go back to. You know, there's such a sense of like poetic realism, so it feels very very natural, but it still has a real kind of poetry to it. Um, and I love that style of realism that is, you know, it's naturalism rather than realism, but there's still like a real kind of poetry and beauty to it. And also it's like drenched with like melancholy and isolation and, you know, that kind of thing. So I go back, I think that's probably one of the key films that I watched when I was thinking about this film. And maybe um, we can open it up to the audience and we can continue when... So please make your question uh, clear and brief, and we will repeat if needed. Um, you there? Yes. So yeah. it's, it's a question about the final scene, really. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, it's always supposed to be open-ended. You're supposed to make up your kind of own decision on what happens. And listening to people's responses, it usually says more about them than it does about the film, about what they would do or what they would want their partner to do in that situation. Uh, for me, I think the, the thing is, it was always a story about, like, Kate is standing there on essentially like a frozen lake, and she's avoiding the cracks throughout the film, trying to avoid how she feels about everything. And in that final moment, she can't anymore. She falls through into like the icy waters below. And it's like, whatever happens, everything has definitely changed. And I think Kate, in that moment, doesn't know what, she doesn't know how to feel. You know, so much has happened, and she's tried to repress and keep it down. And I think when you do that, you know, it's always going to kind of burst out at, at some point. Um, so I like not to think too much about what happens next. And what is your interpretation of the final Well, scene? I mean, it's... it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a sense, her heart is broken, is breaking. Like, it's with the ice or not, but for me, her heart is breaking. But broken hearts are mended, don't worry. She can, you know, she's not, she's not going to sort of... She's not going to disappear, but... But there, there's, a, there's an absolute moment of break, of breaking. And it's, it's when those moments of breaking arrive in life, I think, that you actually go, start to begin to change. And that's when, you're chain, that's when the change in you will begin. But, you have to, but it has to break, you have to break. And so that's why I say her heart is breaking, because it's a heartbreaking situation. 
This person wondered what it would have been like if they were celebrating their 25th anniversary instead of their 45th. Wow. Yes. Uh, maybe think, I think there's a lot of times that this, this could have been resolved, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking today that in a simple way, if the, when they like uh, try and have sex in the film, I feel like if that sex had been successful, they probably would have actually opened up more and the f- film would have ended. <laughs> and they, and they, it wouldn't have become such a traumatic event. <laughs> I was thinking that today. I think, that, I think for me what's so interesting about it is it, it's... I don't know what that says, but I think it's... it's it says we were to finish the film and you were like twenty minutes, today. Half an hour, two hours earlier. <laughs> but it's like, it's, what was so interesting about me is that, that they do love each other and they always have loved each other, but like, that doesn't mean that's still not fragile. And, you know, it doesn't take, I don't think, that much to start throwing people off balance. Um, and that's how I see it. And I think it is emotional infidelity. I think it's like a lack of honesty. It's like feeling like, you know, your understanding of your relationship has just shifted and it's changed and you can't like get back to what it was. Um, and it yeah, might but have been that the same make, That doesn't make it 45 years of infidelity. No, that I don't agree with at all. Emotional. No, emo- of emotional infidelity. No, I don't agree with that. It's only because the crack has happened that, that it becomes that, but it wasn't that before. I don't believe that, no. Yeah, I think if that... No, he wasn't thinking about it, not consciously. He might have been thinking it unconsciously a bit, but not really. But it, you have these, you have these ideas and, and fantasies about your past all the time. We can have that. We're not being unfaithful about it. Because we have fantasies maybe about other people that we sort of did love or thought we loved, this, that, and the other, all those sort of, that sort of stuff. But that's great, you know? And I think we all have versions, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's know, what keeps the relationship not being alive. Faithful to your relationship, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think we all way. have like alternate versions of our lives <laughs> yes. that, that, that play out in numerous different ways. Yeah. And I think that's almost like the hardest thing for Kate to deal with is like, you know, it's suddenly shining a very intense light on her life and what's happened to her life. And one of the interesting things for me about you know their kind of conversations is when he says that he would have married her. And, you know, they would have lived together and they would have had that child. And then what would have happened to Kate? What would have happened to her life? She would have met someone else. She'd be living somewhere else, doing something else. And those kind of issues, if I think about them, they nearly make me have a mental breakdown. So I think, you know, the, the weight of choice and the weight of our decisions and coincidence and randomness is, is, can be very heavy on people. And I think that's part of the story, as well as how she feels about her husband and what she's kept, he's kept from her. I mean, but that scene is also interesting because he, he seems to be like pressing on the issue until he says yes. And she probably would not have let go if he didn't say yes yeah. uh, because that's what she expects and dread at the same time. So, mm. you know. It, like, she needs to know in that moment. Mm. She needs to know the truth. But then she, and she thinks that the truth will make her feel better about the situation. And it just doesn't. And each time mm. she starts to find things out, it doesn't make her feel mm. better until she just wants to basically shut it down mm. and keep it hidden and repress it in a very British sense. It's very British. They drink a lot of tea. Yeah. <laughs> Um, is there a question there? Yeah, I think it's changed a lot. Yeah, yeah it's always a question about the British psyche and, and whether it's changed a lot and that kind of same sense of repression is, is there. And I think it has changed enormously, and I think it definitely has. I think there's still something in the British mentality. I think we, we, we're very good at dealing with certain things and talking about certain things. 
Um, but we don't talk as much as Americans do about their feelings. But I think it's interesting Americans talk a lot about their feelings, but also don't always get to the truth of things. I think the deep, dark truths in all of our lives are very hard to talk about because we don't understand them and we can't express them and we can't talk about them ourselves. I think that's true in any language <clears throat> or any culture. Mm. That the, the truth, that actually finding the truth is, yeah, it's like the Holy Grail, isn't it? Yes. The question is about um, Jeff. Well, uh, the question, the question is, you know, Cage is a kind of saint, right? And he, the, the man, is just sort of doggedly, sort of, you know, going on his own way, and she's just enabling him to go on his own way. Is that it? A bit. I think that's just men. I think it's just men, exactly. You know, and women will do it or not. And Kate was quite happy to do it. And, I, and he wasn't always like that. He was. She, she really loves this man. He's, he's and he's, he was, you know. 45 years later, you can imagine you could have been actually very attractive earlier on if you don't find him attractive now. He still is very attractive. He still is attractive. He's still very attractive. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I, I actually have enormous we're, we're, sympathy. We're defending him. Yeah, I love him. I, I feel like <laughs> we're he's defending in, our Jeff. He's in his own conflict. He's thrown into his own yeah. like torment of who he is now and who he used to be and this yeah. like past suddenly emerging up and taking hold of him so I have a lot of sympathy for him and I think he loves his wife and you know when I when there are those moments of them like connecting I see the old mm -hmm. Jeff and Kate like in those moments like when they're dancing and they're talking about the past and you know I think he does love his wife he doesn't want to hurt her but he's also you know quite blind to the fact that he's upsetting her dramatically at this moment so I think it's you know for me it's it's I have sympathy for him I kind of understand him he's going through his own existential crisis but, um, you know, it's all, it's hard. People are hard, relationships are hard. I think his character is very nuanced. He's not like just a grumpy old man. He's like, he has a lot more um, to offer and he's actually, yeah, like. Yeah, you feel that too, don't you? <laughs> don't you? Yes. Yeah. I, think he's a very, I, mean, I mean, I always think Tom I mean, is an actor very sensitive. I don't know what ladies think about him in the film, but I think he's, you know, he's, he's, he's worth staying around for. It's true. <laughs> well, that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes. And I made the film. <laughs> How was it playing with all that, you mean? Well, it, it just was very natural. Because, I mean, you are what you are in any way. And then when you come to a role, and if that role needs you to sort of t to, to bring your own past in, and th that's actually the most natural thing that you, that you can do. So an instant rapport is created with the person if he also is the same age as you and more or less, you know, more or less did the same things, although we didn't actually know each other. It didn't matter we didn't know each other. We were, you know, we, we were actually involved in the same world. So that, that, made it, that made a big difference. And I think the choice also for when Andrew, when, when, when we decided that it would be Tom, was very much that. There was, there was, a, there was a kind of already something, something familiar between the two of us. There's something, you know, something almost like... Uh, yeah, as if we come from this, as if we come from the same place almost. <coughs> yeah. Um, maybe someone there. Yeah. Yeah, I think in answer to the second part of the question, the catcher and Kate. I mean, I like there's a few like things in the film that you know aren't explained. Things like Katia, Kate, the fact the dog is a German Shepherd. There's all these like little things we wanted to put in that don't necessarily like stand out, but it's it's almost like I wanted them to be lingering around the surfaces of the film, and you know that Kate as a character is thinking about those things. Oh my God, 
is am, am I just like a replacement for this person? You know, was the fact that when he met me, the fact that I was called Kate attractive to him? You know, and so I want those things to all be there without it being like, you know, about one thing or another thing. Um, and the first question, I mean, I think he is in, he's in shock at that moment at that beginning. For me, the main thing about how he is feeling is like suddenly he is being faced with his past in that moment. And for me, whenever I think of that idea of somebody preserved in ice it's kind of horrifying you know and I think most people don't they I almost like picture myself in ice when I was young it's like a strange thing being faced with someone that didn't have to live a life that someone was you know that they, they, they died at that point but they look exactly the same so it's a kind of like like a just a ghost appearing into their lives are working on the film have affected their relationship I mean in real life I think, to be honest, you just, when you work on a film, you like, you, you especially a relationship film, you get all that stuff out while you're working on it. And then when you finish the film, you just kind of go back to your own life and probably don't learn anything at all from what you've, <laughs> what you've been working on. You know, I think they're very separate in some strange, strange way. Yeah, but I don't know how we think that, but I wonder if they are. It's a good question. I did get married after... I made the film. Yeah, you did. So I'm obviously not sort of, against... You did very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. So it wasn't obviously like so horrifying to me that I thought relationships can't succeed. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. something, I, I suppose. I don't know. It's, it's, it is a thing that I... I, I and people, well, people do ask the, the question about that, about how you are sort of, in a sense, haunted by the people that you play or by the stories that you tell and by, by you know, the, the different... different parts of yourself that you bring up so that you can actually play these characters. So I don't know, it's, 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 it's an impossible question to answer, answer, but it's a good question because it's, it does have its relevance somewhere, but I can't specific, I wouldn't be able to specifically say at the moment, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it was not as traumatizing as playing uh, with a chimpanzee in Oshima. Um, <laughs> It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here uh, tonight and showing the film with us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>